Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Reverend Dr. William Ellery Channing served this congregation from 1803 to 1842, our fifth senior minister. His ordination sermon for Jared Sparks preached at the then new church in Baltimore and known rather unimaginatively as the Baltimore Sermon is considered by some to be the most important sermon in Unitarian history. Today marks the 200th anniversary of that sermon. But Unitarian Universalist ministers everywhere are in a quandary this morning. Why? Because Channing's sermon is 24 pages of densely packed type, and it took him no less than an hour and a half to preach it. How can we possibly do it any kind of justice without lulling all of us back to sleep? So after a little agonizing, I am going to make a valiant effort not to go full nerd on you and share just a little background and tantalizing highlights in a few paragraphs. Are you ready? <laughs> 200 years ago, a battle was raging between the fire and brimstone Calvinists and the God is love liberals. The central theme of William Ellery Channing's ministry was the dignity of human nature as created by a loving God and the potential greatness of the human soul. The Baltimore sermon was his call to arms for liberals. And the fact that it was preached outside of Boston signaled the intention of the Unitarians to take our movement national. So in his sermon, Dr. Channing made the case against Christian fundamentalism. This is 200 years ago. Declaring that the Bible is a book written by people for people and that it is our duty to use reason and look beyond the letter to the spirit of biblical teachings. He then went on to outline the principles of what he named Unitarianism. First, he said, rejecting the notion of a trinity, we believe in the doctrine of God's unity. There is one God and one only. Second, he asserted that Jesus was fully human, sent on a divine mission by God to effect a moral or spiritual deliverance of humankind. And we are to be transformed not by sacrifice to a judgmental God, but by Jesus' teachings and the lived example of his actions toward the poor. Third, we must develop and be guided in our actions by our individual conscience. And finally, he said, 
reacting strongly to fundamentalist theology, God is neither capricious nor cruel nor vengeful, but rather good, kind, and benevolent. And in his concluding remarks to the Reverend Sparks, Dr. Channing advises, let your life preach more loudly than your lips. Yeah. And so Unitarian Universalism was well on its way to what it is as we know it and live it today. Alan Coultry, who's a layperson in our congregation in Columbia, Maryland, writes, William Ellery Channing's work resonates with me in the application of thought and reason to moral issues, the need for openness to the continuing nature of revelation, the requirement for us as individuals to develop and be guided by our conscience, and the need to act. If your interest is whetted, the link to an online version of the Baltimore Sermon is printed in your order of service. And sometime, let's nerd out and talk theology. Thank you, friends. For now, I'm going to invite you to join me in turning to the back of your gray hymnal to reading number 592. 592, it's Dr. Channing's The Free Mind. Can you see it there? So I'm going to suggest that we read this to each other. In, in other words, that we read it antiphonally, back and forth across the center aisle. So if you all, who are seated in the right-hand side of the sanctuary, would begin reading the Roman type, and those seated in the left-hand side of the sanctuary respond with the italicized type, I think this would be quite wonderful. So let's begin, the free mind. I call that mind free, which masters the senses and which recognizes its own reality and greatness, which passes life not in asking what it shall eat or drink, but in hungering, thirsting, and seeking after righteousness. I call that mind free, which jealously guards its intellectual rights and powers, which does not content itself with a passive or hereditary faith, which opens itself to light whensoever it may come, which receives new truth as an angel from heaven. I call that mind free, which is not passively framed by outward circumstances and is not the creature of accidental impulse which discovers everywhere the radiant signatures of the infinite spirit and in them finds help to its own spiritual enlargement. I call that mind free, which protects itself against the usurpations of society and which does not honor to human opinion which refuses to be the slave or tool of the many or of the few and guards its empire over itself as nobler than the empire of the world. I call that mind free, which resists the bondage of habit, which does not mechanically copy the past, 
nor live on its own virtues, but which listens for new and higher monitions of conscience and rejoices to pour itself forth in fresh and higher exertions. I call that mind free which sets no bounds to its love, which, whenever they are seen, delights in virtue and sympathizes with suffering, which recognizes in all human beings the image of God and the rights of God's children and offers itself up a willing sacrifice to the cause of humankind. I call that mind free, which has cast off all fear, but that of wrongdoing, and which no menace or peril can enthrall, which is calm in the midst of tumults and possesses itself, though all else be lost. Amen. Born in 1919, Pete Seeger died at age 94. He would have turned 100 on Friday. Whether or not you knew him, you know his music. We're singing some of his greatest hits today. Pete came by music naturally. His father, Charles, was a Harvard-trained composer and a key founder of the academic discipline of ethnomusicology. His mother, Constance Edson, was a concert violinist trained at the Paris Conservatory, who later taught at Juilliard. Pete's parents divorced when he was seven. His father married Ruth Crawford, one of the most important modernist composers of the 20th century. Pete was a bookish and withdrawn kid. He picked up the ukulele, though, and began entertaining his classmates, the first sign of his charismatic audience rapport. When he was 13 years old, traveling with his father and stepmother, he heard the five-string banjo for the first time. Pete referred to this as a conversion experience and spent the next four years mastering his new instrument. Later, he picked up the 12-string guitar, though when you play the 12-string guitar, he said you spend half your life tuning the instrument and the other half playing it out of tune. He enrolled at Harvard, but his grades suffered as he became increasingly involved with politics and folk music. He dropped out and spent a summer touring New York State with a traveling puppet theater, inspired by the rural education campaigns of post-revolutionary Mexico. One of their shows corresponded with a dairy farmer's strike. Pete talked politics with the farmers. He talked about anti-Semitism and unions, war, and peace. The farmers were interested in forging stronger bonds with city workers, the strike having fostered a new understanding and a new respect for the power of solidarity. Pete was enchanted. In 1938, he settled in New York City where he met Woody Guthrie, Aunt Molly Jackson, Lead Belly, and others. He assisted Alan Lomax at the Library of Congress's Archive of Folk Song exposing him to a vast array of traditional American music. Pete was drafted in 1942 and served in the Army in the Pacific. He was trained as an airplane mechanic, but he was assigned to entertain the troops. Later, when people asked him what he did in the war, he said, I strummed my banjo. 
While on furlough in 1943, Pete married Toshi Ota, a filmmaker and producer without whom he said the world would not turn nor the sun shine. They raised three children together and remained married for the rest of their lives. Pete Seeger was a founding member of the Almanac Singers. In 1949, he began to perform with Lee Hayes, Fred Hellerman, and Ronnie Gilbert. They called themselves the Weavers. Saw themselves as a singing newspaper and became a fixture on nationwide radio promoting many progressive causes. Their appeal was massive. Hits included Michael Row the Boat Ashore, Goodnight Irene, Turn, 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 Where Have All the Flowers Gone, Whim Away, and Kumbaya. But in the early 1950s, at the peak of their popularity amidst the post-war anti-communist hysteria, they were blacklisted. Suddenly, radio stations refused to play their records, and all their bookings were canceled. On August 18, 1955, Pete Seeger was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. In his testimony, he said, I am not going to answer any questions as to my association, my philosophical or religious beliefs, or my political beliefs, or how I voted in any election or any of these private affairs. I think these are very improper questions for any American to be asked, especially under such compulsion as this. As a result, he was indicted for contempt of Congress. The blacklist lasted for 17 years. Unable to ply his trade in the most lucrative locations and travel without scrutiny, Pete's music went underground. This was a period of explosive energy and creativity. Between 1954 and 1958, he released four LP records a year. In his hearty tenor, playing five-string banjo or 12-string guitar, Pete sang topical songs and children's song, humorous tunes, earnest anthems, always encouraging his audience to join in. His agenda paralleled the American left. In the 1960s, Pete reworked the old hymn, I Will Overcome, into the iconic anthem, We Shall Overcome, and marched in the South with Dr. King. He raised a strong voice against the Vietnam War, penning great anti-war songs like, If You Love Your Uncle Sam, Bring Him Home. He defined leftist extremist as someone who stands up to defend the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the Sixth Commandment, Thou Shalt Not Kill. Pete became a Unitarian Universalist and joined Community Church where he formed the multiracial, multicultural New York City Street Singers. I wanted to put together a big gang of singers to sing in the streets whenever there was a demonstration or parade, he said. And he urged us as a faith tradition to keep extending our reach. The great need in this world, he said, is not to talk to ourselves so much, but to speak beyond the family. He always valued the idea of music as a way of bringing a community together around a common cause. For him, folk music and a sense of community were inseparable. And where he saw community, he saw the possibility of political action. His favorite concert performances were those where he led the audience and the audience did most of the singing but it was never pure entertainment. All our militants, enthusiasm, and bravery 
will count for nothing, he said, if we can't cross the oceans of misunderstanding between the peoples of the world. Inspired by his friend Woody Guthrie, whose guitar was labeled, This Machine Kills Fascists, Pete Seeger's banjo was emblazoned, This Machine Surrounds Hate and Forces It to Surrender. In 1966, Pete began to raise money to build the Clearwater, a 106-foot sloop that would crusade to clean up the Hudson River. It was launched three years later with a crew of musicians. Pete and Toshi Singer also began the Great Hudson River Revival, an annual music and environmental festival. 40 years of environmental activism and litigation finally compelled General Electric to dredge sediment containing BCPs it had dumped into the Hudson. My job, Pete says, is to show folks there's a lot of good music in the world, and if used right, it may help to save the planet. Pete won a lot of prestigious award in, awards, including being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the category of early influencers. Arlo Guthrie paid tribute to Pete at the ceremony saying, I can't think of a single event in Pete's life that is probably less important to him. Instead of an acceptance speech, Pete led a sing-along of Goodnight Irene, flanked by Stevie Wonder, David Byrne, and members of Jefferson Airplane. British activist and singer-songwriter Billy Bragg said, when you shook his hand, you knew you were shaking hands with someone who had crossed America with Woody Guthrie, who had marched with Dr. King, and who had stared down McCarthyism. He embodied those great struggles. At a concert in Madison Square Garden celebrating Pete's 90th birthday, Bruce Springsteen introduced him as a living archive of America's music and conscience, a testament to the power of song and culture to nudge history along. Pete went on to agitating and singing right through to his final performance at Farm Aid at the age of 94. Toshi, his partner of 70 years, had predeceased him by just six months. In memorializing him, President Obama, at whose inaugural concert Pete had sung on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, noted that Pete had been called America's tuning fork, believing in the power of song to affect social change. Pete used his voice and his hammer, he said, to strike blows for workers' rights and civil rights, world peace, and environmental conservation, and he always invited us to sing along for reminding us where we come from and showing us where we need to go. We will always be grateful to Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger, presente. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.